afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Lorenzo's Oil, English Singing, and Walls of Rice. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. Daryl Brookstein and Mr. Matt Luden, who will talk about all the developments in nanotechnology. Also, we'll find out what hair is made out of. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that means me, Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Awesome again. <laughs> is there any week when we're not doing awesome, I wonder? <laughs> Science is like music to my ears. It's, you know, it's like the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny have mated and produced <laughs> science. <laughs> <laughs> it's magic, huh? It is magic in the air. So speaking of music, do you think when you sing, it comes with an English accent? Yeah, it usually comes in sort of a vague Germanic chant, I think. Oh, okay. It turns out music may not be so international as we had thought. Oh, really? A study carried out by Anirud Patel at the Neurosciences Institute in San Diego suggests that a lot of the music that's composed is actually so indicative of the rhythms and pitch of the language that the composer uses. So they're suggesting there's no universal musical uh, language. Music is more localized than we had thought it would Mm. be. So what he did was he analyzed rhythms and some tunes from English and French music during the late 19th and earliest 20th century and then compared it to their speech. And he noticed that these pieces seems to echo some of the the same rhythms that you find in speech. Okay, so basically the various cadences and rhythmic patterns are the same. Right. I would expect that, right? Uh You wouldn't expect German chants to sound at all like French speech. Right. So the other thing that he uh, suggests is that during that same time, composers also trying to express some form of their own nationality and that could probably have been an influence in the music they wrote. So trying to exemplify all cultural aspects of their Right. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I think of that all the time whenever I'm listening to Janet Jackson. <laughs> so if you were composing, would you sound like <laughs> Janet Jackson? I, I would hope more like Tito, <laughs> the most underappreciated of all the Jacksons. <laughs> I was going to go for John Cage. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. 422 or whatever. 4 minutes and 33 seconds. Yeah. We should try that on this show sometime. <laughs> See yeah. if anyone notices. Actually, if you go to iTunes store, you can actually uh, purchase it there. And there are several <laughs> variations of that. I don't, I don't think anyone could really tell the difference of four minutes of silence and us talking, really. <laughs> it's about the same information content. Yeah. Anyways, this is interesting work, and this is a very nice article in The New Scientist. All right, Frank, and uh, what's your favorite additive? Well, it used to be monosodium glutamate, but now I think a little salt in the water. I prefer cocaine myself. <laughs> the good kind, right? <laughs> yeah. So it turns out, though, that sufferers adrenoleukodystrophy, or ALD, can receive some benefit from Lorenzo's oil. Lorenzo's oil? The essence of life or something, huh? <laughs> in, in a way it is, because it actually uh, helps to stop the synthesis of bad fatty acids, which lead to the development of ALD. Uh-huh. 
a discovery made by Augusto and Michaela Odone when they learned that their son Lorenzo was suffering from ALD. They did some research and they found that this extract of certain types of oils could actually help inhibit the formation of these. Hmm. So I guess a lot of these oils contain some sort of antioxidant or some sort of scavenging. It's true, but the mechanism this is using is just simply an, as an inhibitor. So oh. oleic acid is basically inhibiting just formation. Okay. It's actually quite fascinating, but they've known actually that this was going on, but they couldn't actually prove a link between the two, that this was actually helping to prevent the formation of ALD. Right. And so a group of researchers now have finished a very long study, a trial which began in 1989, by giving a group of boys with the genetic markers for ALD. Uh-huh. They gave them a diet of oleic acid. Uh-huh. And they tested them recently, and they showed that in the brains of all these boys that they actually had fewer irregularities as visualized by magnetic resonance imaging wow. than one might expect. So anyway, just is proving that the Lorenzo's oil is somewhat curative. And something uh, all natural, I guess, huh? <laughs> yeah, you can get it from a plant, which is the rapeseed oil. <laughs> oh, okay. Pretty common plant. Yeah. Uh, re- a very fascinating work. It was shown in a recent edition of Archives of Neurology. So do you like rice, Charles? It's a staple of my diet, so yeah. <laughs> you don't worry that it'll just gel up and solidify in your stomach into one big lump? Uh, well, I, I figure that's what my tapeworm is doing. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it turns out rice has commonly been used as glue before they came with, uh, with adhesives. Mm-hmm. And for the research, actually suggests that ancient Chinese builders used rice, uh, actually in porridge, in building ramparts. Very recent tests showed that the motor from the wall around the city of Xi'an reacts chemically in the same way as rice. So it was built out of milled rice somehow. This further suggests that the Great Wall would contain a little rice. Well, excellent. So I guess if you get hungry and you're on there, <laughs> you just chew on the wall. Yeah. So uh, there's a very nice summary in a recent edition of Chemical Engineering News. Finally, uh, I guess moving from granular rice to nutty problems. Those are my favorite. They're the best kind of problems. Yeah, they're kind of crunchy. Uh, So this is actually what is uh, known as the Brazil nut effect. The Brazil nut effect. Right. So if you have like a can of mixed nuts, the larger ones will tend to rise to the top and the smaller ones will fall to the bottom. Ah, isn't that like one of the mysteries of physics or something? (laughs) It is. It is indeed. And even though they have rough explanation for this, so basically the the smaller grains basically rise in the center of the can, pushing the uh, bigger ones down the sides. Right. But apparently this is not uh, the whole story because if you shake a can vigorously... Uh-huh. the bigger ones actually will end up on bottom if, if they're more dense than the uh, the grains, for instance. Okay. So it's it's not exactly clear why this is, and it's sort of difficult to study in this big three-dimensional problem. Yeah. So what a group of researchers, Tobias Schnauz, Christoph Kuhl, and colleagues from the University of Bayreuth in Germany uh, have shown is that if you have sort of a circular plate just with a bunch of marbles on it, mm. and you shake, you swirl the plate around, uh-huh. filled with like small little uh, beads, and then you introduce bigger marbles into it, uh-huh. what happens is the same sort of effect happens. If you have very dense marbles, they'll drift to the center, uh-huh. whereas the less dense ones will shift to the outer edges, hmm. saying that sort of the same types of processes may be happening in this two-dimensional system, Right. and it may provide a very clean way of studying this phenomenon. It's like a centuries-old mystery there, huh? <laughs> and continuing to be, but now they get to play with marbles in a plate. But it, it does provide a nice model system to study the thing, so mm-hmm. they'll solve the Brazil nut effect, one of the great mysteries of science. <laughs> Did uh, Science Magazine come up with a list of like the 25 top mysteries yet yeah, unsolved or Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if this one made it, but... <laughs> I would think curing cancer might be hopefully up there. Oh, okay. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's certainly fascinating, and I guess it just shows that even very simple physical phenomena we, we still don't have a good grasp on. Um, and this was actually uh, published in a recent edition of the Physical Review Letters. 
And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Mr. Daryl Brookstein will join us to talk about the business of nanotechnology. So stay tuned. Rocks here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, nanotechnology is one of the new scientific buzzwords drifting about the popular culture, promising everything from nanorobots to nonstick plates. But how much is hype and how much is reality, and where are the real opportunities for nanotech investors? Well, join us today to discuss this issue is Mr. Daryl Brookstein. Mr. Brookstein is managing director of the Nanotech Company, a nanotech venture capital and fund management company. He's also the author of the new book, Nanotech Fortunes, and we're very happy to welcome you today to Berkeley Grocks. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure, and you've certainly written a very fascinating book, Nanotech Fortunes, Make Yours in the Boom. This is certainly, I think, an issue that a lot of people have heard about, but there's a difference between the science fiction and the science fact. So I'm curious if you can maybe tell us where the science is at the moment. Well, the people on my scientific advisory board cover all of the disciplines in nanotechnology, electrical engineering, material science, physics, chemistry, biology, medicine. And we just announced bringing on board Dr. Ajayan out of RPI, who I guess is the leading carbon nanotube researcher in the world today. And I'm not a scientist myself, but in, in talking to these folks since 2001, and I've been meeting with Erki Rishwati, the head of our board, regularly since 2001, the, the separation between science and science fiction um, is an important important one. So for example, things like gray goo and self-assembling molecular machines and nanorobots are science fiction, hmm. meaning we're not like going to see them in 10 years, 30 years, or even 60 years. We're never going to see that. Hmm. And nanoscience itself and the technology that are rising out of small technology, whether it be nanotechnology or MEMS or microfluidics or microelectronics, are very real and with us today and are probably going to lead the cutting edge of all of these disciplines and commercialization of products, I think, for probably the next 20 to 60 years. Hmm, I see. And what particular applications are people really looking at and developing? Well, you're seeing right now a lot, as you said, mundane materials and things like like non-stick plates and stain-resistant pants and tennis rackets that are reinforced with carbon nanotubes and ski wax that makes you go much faster down the slopes and things like that. But you're also seeing nanocatalysts. You're seeing the development of products, I think, especially in biomedical, medical diagnostics that are going to come quicker than probably most people think and are going to be 
quite exciting and happening probably over the next three to seven years. In terms of computers and using, for example, carbon nanotubes or certain particles as electronic components, those things I think are a little further off than what some of the promoters would have you believe. I think some of the writing indicates that this stuff is two to six years away, and I would argue strongly that it's more like 10 to 15 years away. And a key issue in some of these areas is not so much what the science and technology can accomplish, but whether there will be commercial applications or whether the market will be ready to bear the brunt of, for example, manufacturing some of these products. Mm, Your book is called Nanotech Fortunes. You detail how to look at up-and-coming nanotech companies. What are some things that investors can look for in terms of assessing nanotech companies? I think given first understanding science and technology very well and then understanding the productization and commercialization process very well, I think are going to be key. So, for example, you don't want to latch on to a great technology for which no market exists. They call this a a product in search of a problem to solve. (laughs) You don't want to be in that situation. That's going to be key. Like all companies, early stage companies that you would invest in, you cannot underestimate management. So I'd rather have a terrible product with a great management team because they'll always find a way to make it work rather than a great product with a poor management team because they'll always find a way to mess it up. Are there any uh, nanotech companies that you're particularly excited about right now? Not really. Uh, (laughs) I think the current situation, all of small technology, and I guess particularly nanotechnology, is that we sort of had a little bit of a topping in 2004 and turned into sort of a major top by the end of the year. And I think that slide that started in November of last year is likely to continue to at least mid-2006 and maybe as long as the end of 2008. Hmm. Uh, Somewhere in that time frame, I'm going to get very excited because a lot of these companies are going to be out of money and looking for financing and or near bankruptcy. And I think there's going to be a lot of value to be found. And of course, the science and technology will be much further advanced by then. But we're actually seeing cutting back by venture capitalists and investment bankers in this area for good reason. A lot of money was invested in 2000 to 2003 on the idea that they were going to be paid out by 2005 and 2006, and that doesn't seem likely. So there's a little bit of negative tint on the whole area that will probably last for a year or more. Is the industry constrained, I guess, a little bit by the science behind it, that it just takes a long time for these products to come to market? Yeah, a lot of times the science and technology are ahead of the market. And I'll give you a good example. A good example would be how nanotechnology might deal with Moore's Law. And that's probably something most of your listeners are very familiar with. And I heard the head of Intel Technology talk about CMOS will probably last well past 2015 and maybe as late as 2019 Hmm. in terms of being able to meet Moore's Law without any need to reach towards nanotech solutions. So there, I guess you could argue that even if a nanotech solution was available today, Hmm. it wouldn't even be needed by the marketplace until 2016 to 2021. Another area is in computer memory, where coming out of the lab, for example, the concept of quantum computing. 
these products are going to require tremendous leaps in industrial manufacturing capability. And while they can exist in the lab, they're a long way off from being able to be produced, for example, in the billions per day with very small error rate. So just finding the solutions to some of these problems can be a five to seven year process. And then gearing up for manufacturing can easily be another three to five years. Uh, am, I, am I sounding a little too negative? Uh, well, it caused concern like, in terms of people want to actually try and invest in this area. Uh, what would you recommend for the average investor then? Well, I think that for the average retail investor, somebody with, let's say, anywhere from 2000 to $200,000 to invest, I would be doing my research now and hmm. analyzing some of these publicly traded companies. And if you're fortunate enough to be in a position where you can make an angel-type investment of twenty or 50000 or more in a private company, hmm. you want to be sure you're aligned with good scientists and then be able to analyze the company's business model as well as the management. And some of these private companies are likely to finally make either IPOs or be taken over by the Intels and Motorola and IBMs of the world mm. starting out there in this late 2006 to 2009 era. So mm. if you're an investor in the stock market, look to be a buyer in that time frame, do your due diligence now. Likewise, if you're fortunate enough to be able to make a larger private type investment, I think you look now, try to make your investments in the 2006 to 2007, 2008 period with an idea of cashing out big time around 2010, 2012. So it's definitely a very long-term uh, strategy here. Yeah, and if you want to, I mean, I run a hedge fund that goes long and short these small technology stocks right now. And basically, we're buying the ones we like for short-term profits and selling the ones we don't like for short-term profits and trading you know, a hedge fund on that basis. And so I would caution you know, short-term traders and speculators that given the volatility and given how little is known about a lot of these smaller companies, that you really run high risk to get in there and try to face off against a professional like myself. I, <laughs> I think it's a very hard road to hoe. But you could get, you could get lucky. Right, right. <laughs> So, Mr. Brooks, are there any opportunities for uh, scientists to get involved? You can actually go on site right now and see a little 23-second preview of what's coming, and that's coming in August. And we are going to have matching for young scientists as well as seasoned scientists where they'll be able to, for example, post their resumes or express interest in doing consulting work or in getting a job either with industry or just changing universities or whatever. It's going to be on nanotechnology.com, and you'll see a little preview to how that's going to shape up. Right now, it's just a, a website for our small company, and that part of the site, you know, the nanotech company's part of the site is going to drift into being just like this little, little tiny fraction of one page on the site. And nanotechnology.com is going to be the international network for small technology, and we're going to have a lot of opportunity for scientists and engineers to interact and find ways to uh, interact with the industry, doing consulting or changing universities or going to work for a government lab, whatever. I think that would be... Uh, you know, a lot of students listen to your show, and they might be interested in, in checking that out, especially uh, as it gets more developed in August. Okay, well, thank you very much again for your time. And uh, it does look like we're a little bit out of time, but Mr. Brooksy, I do want to thank you very much for joining us on the program today and discussing all the uh, fascinating opportunities in uh, nanotech. Thank you very much for having me. And you were just listening to Mr. Daryl Brookstein talking about the business of nanotechnology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Mr. Matt Luden will join us to discuss more about the science of nanotechnology. So stay tuned.
welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Well, I'm very excited here to be in Anaheim here with Dr. Matthew Loudon, director of the NSTI, Nanoscale Science and Technology Institute. Dr. Loudon, thanks for joining us today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. So, first of all, could you tell us what exactly is NSTI? Sure. So, uh, the Nanoscience and Technology Institute w started uh, approximately eight years ago, and this was an organization that was formed to uh, to look at the convergence between a range of different uh, technologies, uh, sciences that were traditionally separate disciplines, and the overlap between industrial sectors uh, that's all taking place at the nanoscale and, and somewhat into the microscale also. And uh, one of the activities that, uh, that occurred with the formation of this organization was the creation of this conference, uh, the Nanotech, eight years ago, uh, which has now uh, continued to grow to the point it is now with around 2,500 participants. Tell us a little bit about your background. How did you become interested in uh, nanotechnology? Sure. So I, I'm a PhD from uh, University of Wisconsin, uh, and, and at that point I worked in a synchrotron quite a bit uh, on advanced lithography programs, uh, and, and also somewhat in microsystems. And, and during that period, we started seeing a lot of overlap between you know, technology uses uh, at the nanoscale. And when I say technology uses, I guess I should clarify and say the tools that are used, the design tools, characterization tools. And, and working in a synchrotron, you see a lot of life science applications. You saw a lot of sensor work. And, um, and we saw you know, a lot of uh, advanced electronics work. And we, but we saw overlaps between the, the needs of all of those communities. Um, I then worked at uh, the university, uh, the EPFL in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland, uh, as a postdoc. Uh, and during that time, we, we formulated the idea of, of trying to create a community that uh, addressed those overlaps we saw. And when I say we, I have a, a business partner from, also from uh, Switzerland, uh, Bart Romanovitz, um, who's a PhD from, from Switzerland. So we started this conference eight years ago uh, with the concept of, of developing these overlaps. And, uh, and then Bart, uh, Dr. Romanovitz went on to MIT and I, I went and worked for Motorola and, and then Los Alamos Labs. And, and during this period, we worked on very different things, but we kept seeing uh, these overlaps. So the conference, the nanotech kept growing during all this period. And in the end, uh, it's reached the point now where we have very strong life science uh, submissions that come in, very strong materials, uh, electronics, sensors, you know, some energy work. We have a big symposium on cancer nanotechnology. Um, and, and, and it's really a, a, a collection of overlapping sciences and technologies uh, that, that are taking place at the nano scale. What are some of the exciting developments you see this year? So I, I think one of you know one of the highlights for us is uh, well one is the the trade show side of it we we see we have 170 companies that are here exhibiting with the event so this is uh, you know the last three years that that part of the event has doubled each year and that's a that's a great uh, um, indicator of of what's happening in the community you know we have a lot of companies that are maturing and reaching a commercialization uh, level. Uh, that that has have products out there on the market. Um, we also have uh, you know we're running a uh, uh, special symposium with the National uh, Cancer Institute, and there's some very large funding opportunities coming through NCI this year specifically for nanotechnology. Um, 
And, and that's also exciting because NIH and NCI are, are looking at it from a very, uh, also from a multidisciplinary aspect, which is somewhat uh, a, a change from uh, NIH's traditional funding route. So now there's, you know, many of the, many of the proposals are looking for uh, uh, participation from, from engineers, material scientists, um, and the like, as, and not just from the life science side of things. So, so all of those are, are quite interesting to us. Um, you know, and then, and then another in indicator that's quite exciting is we have, uh, we had around uh, close to 100 early stage companies that submitted into our ventures forum this year. We uh, vetted that down with our, uh, with our uh, uh, the, uh, participating vetting team uh, to about uh, 45 that are presenting during the week. Um, and that's, that's an exciting time. This is, ranges from seed to, you know, first and second round companies that, uh, that are looking for funding or that are, you know, getting over the hump and starting to, starting to show what, what they've created. So this is, uh, you know, there's just a lot happening that uh, this year uh, in comparison to the previous years and, and very large growth for us. So. Great. So you mentioned cancer. Um, what are some of the potential um, treatments or... Um imaging technologies you perceive with nanotechnology there? Right. Um, so again, I'm, I'm definitely not the expert in this area, and, uh, and we have a lot of people coming in the next two days that I think it'd be great for you to talk to. Um, but, but obviously, you know, the, the focus is going to be on, on uh, diagnostics and delivery uh, uh, and, and imaging. Um, and, and we have sessions that run on each of those. So in, in some cases, this is... Uh, well, in, in some cases, it's, it's, you'll see targeted uh, delivery for tumors, and then imaging, it's, it ranges from the molecular scale imaging to actual, uh, what you'd call more medical imaging, um, which is you know, trying to identify, or, or not so much at the molecular scale, but applying it more towards a, a medical device for, for sale. And we have, one of the interesting things there is we have um, a couple sessions where we have GE and Pfizer and uh, Boston Scientific, you know, a number of, of players in, in that space that are coming to say, this is what we're doing in nanotechnology. This is what we feel is uh, uh, going to impact our community, so our, our potential markets. Nanotechnology in the public is not something that's very well understood. In fact, there are a number of detractors who feel that this is something where it's going to turn the you know, world into a great goo. Uh, what are some of the you know, uh, misconceptions that people have about nanotechnology. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of, a lot of, you know, most of the press of what you hear of nanotechnology is, you know, coming more from the science fiction side or projections out 50 to 100 years, which, you know, which is understandable. It's, uh, you can have exciting projections along those lines. Um, you know, in the, in the last eight years, I think we've had a, a total of two submissions out of our probably, you know, 15, thousand uh, submissions that have come in through through our organization that that really look at thing uh, technologies such as assemblers or, or you know your reference to, to gray goo and I, and I think that's simply because you know the, those those aren't some you know those technologies aren't aren't quite something that's uh, in place right now um, as far as uh, as far as having an impact on these commercial uh, groups in general these commercial group or commercial activities are, you know, they're making tools to sell to the semiconductor industry or making tools to sell to uh, uh, the coatings industry. And, and it's not uh, perhaps as exciting as, as would be uh, expected through, through a science fiction uh, concept. So, 
These days, are there any commercial products which have used the fruits of nanotechnology? Again, I think at the trade show, it's probably the easiest place to see that. And, and you know, there's, there's a range of things. There's an Australian group here that's, that's showing uh, temperature-sensitive barcodes that then track the history, temperature history of, uh, of where the product has gone, you know, and they apply this onto to foods and wines and, and the like. And this is very much a molecular, you know, nanoscale product that's, that's, uh, that's being used. Um, th there's there's a number of improvements in battery applications that are that are uh, on display during the the event, um, you know, and, and, and a very large range of of, uh, of coatings um, that are that are used for improvements in, in you know topic you know everything from paints to 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 uh, again food food containers. Um, How about uh, photovoltaics or fuel cells? Has now technology uh, brought any advances in those areas as well? You know, I, I think there are there are definitely a lot of activities that are going on in this in that space. I, I honestly wouldn't be the expert to, to be able to talk about uh, some of it, but you see a lot of work on, and we and we have a lot of work that's related to membrane uh, studies, ion channels, and and you know working with ion channels to to develop uh, more efficient um, or, or uh, more efficient or models for uh, improvements in uh, in fuel cells. Well, I just want to thank you for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Okay, thank you. And now Yoda with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is hair? <clears throat> Protein is made from keratin especially it is. <clears throat> but eat it, you should not. For curly hair, disulfide bonds from cysteine amino acids, you'll find. That is what hair it is. Okay, my friend, and now it is Esteban the Spaniard with this week's question of the week. Here in Spain, my friend, we love the masers. They are so fast, they are so amazing, and they're penetrating. But what are they? How do they work? Well, if you know the answer, email us at groxedotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but oh, you just feel the powers of electromagnetic radiation. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.